Am I on? There we go. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, taught in the beginning of chapter 2 that when we gather together, that there is no more important thing that we can do as a corporate body than to pray, to pray frequently and to pray fervently. And we need to understand that we never graduate from prayer. That is, we never begin with prayer, then go on to more important things, and because there is no more important thing than the prayer of God's people to their God. And he instructed there that when we pray, we ought to pray for all people. That is, all kinds of people, not just family members, not just friends, not just people within our faith family, but we need, to, we, we need to broaden that sphere of prayer and pray for all different types of people from around the world. And he said the reason that we must do that is because God desires all people to be saved and because God is deserving of the worship of all people. Would you, would you agree with that, right? We, we all agree with that. And now what he's going to do is he's going to continue to teach on this subject of prayer. But now what he's going to do is he's going to talk specifically to the men. He's going to address the men first, which means I'm going to address the men first. And then he's going to address the ladies second, all right? And by doing this, though, here's what I want you to understand. Even though he's specifically addressing the men in the first part, it doesn't mean that what he's saying doesn't have any application or implications for women. All it simply means is that when he was writing this particular letter, this was a specific problem that the men had in that church at the time but as we're going to see, I think it goes beyond that. I think it's a ch- problem that men often have from culture to culture to generation to generation beyond just that first century. And so the same would be true for the women. What he says to the ladies may be something that women specifically deal with, but it doesn't mean that there are there aren't applications to men as well. So he gives us two different instructions concerning praying when we come together in the house of God, uh, the first to men, then to women. What are they? Well, here's his command to men. The very first command is a call to men to cool it. A call to men to cool it. All right. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at verse eight. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Now, understand something when you're reading your Bibles. This is an easy way to interpret things. If the apostle says that they ought to be doing something, it naturally leads us to understand that they weren't doing the very thing that he's telling them to do. There would be no need. So in this particular case, there's not a whole lot of prayer that's going on. And so he says that you need to be praying in every place. Every place would have, would have um, applied to all the different house churches that they would have used today. They didn't come together all the time in a big kind of sanctuary like this, but rather they were meeting in individual homes. And he says, look, man, wherever you are, whenever you're coming together, you need to pray because they're ultimately not. And he says, and when you do, notice this, he says, lifting, when you do, while you're doing it, uh, do it while lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, it's important for us to understand when he says to pray with lifting up holy hands, I don't believe that he's given a definitive command on the appropriate posture to pray, all right? We got to understand that as we're interpreting scripture, because if not, then every time somebody prays at dinner with their hands down, they're like, man, get the hands up. Bible says you need to raise those hands, right, to to be able to pray. I I don't think that's where he's going with this. And part of the reason is because Scripture shows the posture of prayer in all different manner throughout Scripture. You've noticed this, right? Sometimes uh, people bow in prayer. Psalm 5, verse 7, the psalmist says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, and I will bow down toward your holy temple. 
Sometimes people kneel in prayer. Daniel was a wonderful example of this, wasn't he? Uh, the scriptures tell us in Daniel 6.10, he says, and he, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God. And another way to pray, sometimes people fall flat uh, uh, in prayer on their faces. We see Moses do that. Uh, we, see, we see Joshua do that. We even see Job praying. They're in the presence of God. They're experiencing the holiness of God. And they begin to communicate God to God through prayer. So, so understand when he says to raise up hands, I don't think that he's trying to, to describe or command a certain uh, posture of the body, but instead he's referring to the purity of the heart in which we should pray. So what he's saying is, hey, listen, before, because what we find is in the word of God, the hands throughout scripture symbolizes the condition of a heart. When there's dirty hands, it speaks of a dirty heart. When there's clean hands, it speaks of a, a, a clean heart. Uh, throughout uh, the Temple Mount, there were all of these little, little baths, these little pools for people to be able to wash their hands with, which was a demonstration and symbolic of the need for people to get their hearts right before God, before entering into worship, offering up sacrifices and praying to God. We see it uh, through scripture. For example, we see Psalm 26, 6. Um, as on, on the way to worship, they would sing, I wash my hands in innocence and go uh, around your altar, O Lord. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, you might be more uh, familiar with this. He says, who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Talking about the temple. He says, who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. So get this. Paul's emphasis is that we all pray together, right? With emphasis on that. And that we pray for all people. We, we, we get that. Those are the two things that we're called to ultimately do. But he says, but when you do it, men... You've got to do it with a pure heart when you're coming to pray to God. In other words, before you make requests, that's what the context is, to pray for all people in the world. Before you come making requests on, on your behalf or on behalf of anybody else, you need to make sure that your heart is right, that your sins are confessed up to date. And, and, and now we, we understand this. I've said this before, but uh, but I think it's interesting, the prayers, and I'm not picking on people's prayers because I, I've, I've prayed this way myself, where you get a whole group together and you know that the appropriate thing to do is to confess our sin, but we've got, we want to speed through that up because we want to ask God for something. So we just generally say, Lord, if there be any wicked way in me, if there's any way that we've failed you, dear God, we ask that you would dismiss that and forgive us for our sins. Now let's get on to the things we want, right? So we breeze over it as if, and God has to find this maybe a little bit humorous or maybe not, where he's sitting there going, if you failed in any way, right? And if he wanted to, he could take a list and go, you know, from heaven and it would fall down here to earth and go, these are the ways you failed today, right? This isn't what God does. And I don't think this is his intention. I, I think what Paul is, he's not talking about the myriad of different ways that we stumble throughout the day. And we stumble in many ways. Would you agree? Many ways. We're in our, our thoughts and our actions, many things unintentionally that we, we don't even mean to fail with, but what we are. And God, God's grace is sufficient for all of that. Amen. But I think what he's doing is he's not talking about those peripheral things. I think what he's talking about is a sin that we do intentionally and deliberately. 
think what he's calling us to is he says, listen, if you can come, if you think that you can come to God's temple or to God's house and you're going to praise and you're going to worship and you're going to give and you're going to do all these things, but yet you're coming clinging to sin that you're unwilling to even give up and confess. Again, I don't think he's ultimately talking about things that we're even struggling with. Anybody struggle with sin on a day-to-day basis? I know that I do. And that is a day-to-day basis, year after year, struggling with certain areas of sin. I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about the attitude of the person who comes to God and says, God, I want something from you, but I'm not going to give this sin up. I'm going to hold it on. And he says, in essence, what he's saying is this isn't the way that any of this works. And I think what he's trying to get at is the same thing that James teaches in James chapter one. This is important for all of us that just showing up and just praying and just making requests is not effective if you are holding on to specific sin. James says in James chapter one, he says, if anybody asks, lacks wisdom, let them ask, right? And the, but then he says, without doubting. And many of us have struggled with that passage because when we read it, we think to ourselves, oh no, every time I ask, there's doubting. You with me on that? The emotional feeling. And then he goes on and it's scary because he says, but if you ask with doubt, don't, let, don't expect anything from God. And then you're like, oh no, everything I ask, I'm, I'm kind of struggling a little bit with emotion, but that's not what Paul, that's not what James was saying. He wasn't talking about the emotion of, uh, of struggling to believe, which I think we all have, right? It's kind of like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that, that feeling. He's talking not about an emotion, he's talking about an action. And he says, look, if you come to God, the way that you show that you doubt that God can meet the need is if you're going in, in your own power doing sinful things to be able to meet that need. So if you're struggling financially, just an example, struggling financially, and you say, God, I need your help, in the same manner doing things that are illegal or doing things that are not trusting in God, that's a double-minded man. You're not showing faith. That's not trusting God at all. And so I think what he's trying to get at is he says, men, you're not doing any good. Even when you do pray, you are praying at the same time of holding on sin, which means that your prayers are ultimately being impeded. Guys, let 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 me say something to this effect right now is, this means before we even progress anymore within the service, some of us need to be repenting. Some of us need to sit back and we need to begin to think to ourselves, hey, listen, God, I've held on to this sin. I've had this sin in my life. I haven't wanted to give it up. But if you're thinking to yourself that you can move on with God and you can have any effectiveness in your prayer life to see God work while you're knowingly clinging to what you know is wrong, you're fooling yourself. Now, I think that there's something here more more to it than that. I think he's even more specific, a specific type of sin. And that is the type of sin that we have towards God because we have it towards one another. Now, notice what he says. He says here, he he, he talks and he says, Paul adds, he says that we're to lift up, we're to pray by lifting up our hands, what? Without anger or quarreling. Now we understand why there's no prayer going on inside the church. There's no prayer going on inside the church because everybody's angry at each other and everybody's arguing with one another and they're clinging. And so no prayer can ultimately be done at this point. It's because the men were spending all of their time being angry. Now, it's not as though women don't ever get angry, right, ladies? Men, don't say amen, all right, all right? It's, it's not as though women never get angry or that they're never kind of divisive. We have a whole book, the book of Philippians, where Paul has to call out Eudy and Syntyche and say, you're causing discord amongst the brother, knock it out, okay? It's not so much that women aren't guilty of the very thing. It just seems like men have a sinful propensity for arguing and being divisive. And it says, well, how do we know that? I think, I think look, as, as young boys... 
uh, I think we, we like to argue a lot, even as young boys. Men, do you remember this? Was the first thing we begin to argue with boys about the entire playground, the entire hour in playground? I think you get 15 minutes now. But back then, when we were done, we had a whole hour. And so when we had the whole hour, what did we argue about? Whose father could beat up whose and why? My dad can beat up your bat. When you get a little bit older, what do you begin to do? You begin to argue what sports team is better, right? And then what happens, unfortunately, as we get older and become older, we keep some of those same bad habits, and men get into the church, and they're still argumentative. They're still, they get angry. They're still argumentative towards things. In the context here, what he's talking about is what they were most likely arguing about is they were arguing about doctrine. Remember, that's what Paul is writing to Timothy about. He's telling him, he says, look, there's false teachers within the church, and you need to shut that stuff down. You need to stop it right away. So let me make this very clear. I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that there aren't times that you need to speak up when false doctrine is being taught, especially, or that we shouldn't be righteously angry when we hear somebody that is preaching specifically a false gospel. Paul would have identified with all of that, but I think he's talking about something uh, distinctly different. I think what Paul's referring to is this. I think he's talking about the pride that we men often deal with in thinking we're right needing to be right, and being angry if other people don't admit that we are right. Now, some of you men are looking there going, I don't know what you're talking about, and your wife is going, yes, this is it. This is, this is exactly right. I think, it, I think there is this compulsion in us that we just think that we know more than what we know, and we have, and here's where men are, they will, in order to be right, often jettison relationships in order just to be able to be found right. I've never heard a woman say this, go, yeah, but you've got to admit that I'm right. You've got to admit that I'm right. You've got to admit that you were wrong and I'm right. But I've heard men say that a million times. In fact, this man has said it many times. Even if water is under the bridge, it's kind of like, yeah, but who's right? Well, I won, right? And they're all fired up because they, they ultimately have to be right. You know, one of the most annoying people in all the world is a newly graduated seminary student. Some of the most annoying people in the world. I was one of them. That's how I know. You graduate, and for three years, you have more information stuck in your head than what you know with. And you walk out, and you're like that bobblehead doll. And you go into the church, and you feel like it's your job to let everybody know that in their entire life, they've never believed anything right or done anything right. And you're there to be their Messiah, to be able to clear all this up. And what you find very quickly, and I did, is nobody cares what you know. Nobody cares what you know. But what you begin to understand is that not that truth is not important, but what we begin to understand and need to understand as men is you have to understand when to speak, when to correct, and when being right is important and when it ultimately is not. See, there's a myriad of different reasons why anger and quarrels have no place in the church, if you've ever been a part of a church that had a lot of arguing and bickering and, and angry people in it, you don't want that, do you? I, I've been in that before. That's a horrible place to ultimately be. And one of the reasons it's bad is it's hard to even live in. It's hard to even think about it because there's always some kind of rift in that particular church. But, but what else is really difficult is that it really doesn't say much to a lost. People aren't gravitating to churches that are ripping themselves apart. It's not like, hey, let's go to that church. They hate each other. No, the Bible says they will know that you are Christians by your what? Your love. Now finish it. One for another. So this is important. But in, within the context, what is he talking about? 
Well, in the context, he's specifically talking about relationships. And the problem is that that arguing and thing destroy relationships because of a man's prideful spirit of always having to be right and isn't willing to be able to sit back and go, you know what, some of this stuff is just not important at all. And so some of this we see not only in our relationship with each other, but men, do you know where it really impacts us? Just not only impacts us in the church, but it impacts us with a relationship with our wives and our kids. Did you know that sometimes your wife knows how to do the right thing? That sometimes she actually knows how to sweep and she doesn't need your instructions on how to sweep the floor? Do you know that sometimes your kids just don't need you to fix everything about them? That when they grab a pencil, sometimes it's okay if it's like this. Sometimes it's okay if it's like this. Sometimes it's okay if it's sticking out their ear and they're writing like this. Not everything is an issue for you to have to fix in your wife and in your kids. It becomes exhausting sometimes for our wives and for the children to constantly nitpick, to constantly talk about what's right, constantly being angry and constantly be able to ultimately get our way. Peter says, and what's the problem with it? The problem is not just that lost people don't like it. The ultimate problem within the context of what he's writing is that it's impeding your prayers. Peter says this, 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of grace, of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You think that you can be critical of everybody around you and need to be right all the time and need to be corrective all the time and you're walking around with that kind of spirit and you think you're going anywhere with your relationship with God or that God's acknowledging your prayers, your prayers are completely hindered. They're going nowhere past the ceiling, my friend. So he says, what are we ultimately supposed to do? And he says there, he says in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus tells us, that's why he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift and there, there, there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to the brother and then come and offer your gift. Here's what he's saying. You coming and me coming to the worship service, you and I coming and, and praising and praying and doing all that stuff, there's nothing effectual, there's nothing helpful about any of that between you and your relationship with God or constructive for those who you're praying for if the relationship with each other, as far as it is possible, is not right one with another. You, you see what he's saying? So men, he says, look, you need to cool it. And, and what I would say is some of you are sitting here and you're like, he's not talking to me, but your wife who's sitting next to you is saying, dear God, please let my husband get this. Please let him understand. Please let him understand that he is driving his kids away because of how critical he is about everything, about his need to be right all the time. And my heart and my affections for him are fleeting because he's a bully at home. And so we need to be able to come. And he says to them, he says, man, hey, listen, this is not at it all to be. You know, I was, I was definitely that guy when I was first out of seminary, and it's been a long time, but used to think that I needed to correct everybody for everything that they were doing wrong. I had a gentleman come up to me one time and I don't, he really wasn't the most godly guy, you know, but he said something pretty good that really put me in my place. And, 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 and what he said was this, he goes, you know, it's amazing to me. He says, because God knows infinitely more than you know, but he's infinitely less critical than you are. And, and think about that just for a minute. 
If you feel it like it's nagging when people don't do the right thing or say the right thing around you, even biblically and theologically, and you find that annoying and you feel like your job is to be able to correct everybody, just imagine the pressure Jesus would have been under, who is God, by the way, who knows all things. And the whole group of people are around him. Can you imagine them sitting there going, hey, but, hey, Jesus, let me tell you what God really wants. And Jesus sit there and go, okay, well, no, um, because I'm God. Let me tell you what it is that I want, Right. And so, but what does he do? We don't see Jesus with this critical, very rarely this critical spirit for him. Of all the things that he said, he chose very wisely when to speak, when it would be most edifying and building up to those who were ultimately around him. Men, that's who God has called us to be. And if you want the lack of disturb, you want to take the sermons out of your family and out of your church, don't be argumentative. Pray with a pure heart not being angry or argumentative with everybody who's ultimately around you. We need wisdom. Now, it's time for the women. And what I've done is I've preached and used almost all of my time on the men so that ladies right now would be like, I like that preacher. He really got onto my husband, and so we're really, really good. And so the little bit of time I want to spend on the ladies so that enough deposits have been made in your love for me that I can make a little bit of withdrawal, okay? That's what we're going to do. Because what happens is where he tells the men, specifically here, he tells the men to cool it, to the women he addresses, he calls the women to cover it, to cover it. Now, look what the scriptures say in verse 9. He says, likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, it was interesting because in the first service, I had a lady just on the second row over here, and she had pearls around her neck, and all of a sudden, she kind of like started grasping her pearls. No one grasped their pearls, okay? Nobody start taking their hair out of their braid. Let's just work through this for a second, all right? Let's see what God says. I mean, people are like running out. Okay, so look, what, what, what are we doing? It's essential, once again, to understand the context in which he's writing, to make sure we, see, we understand very clearly what he's saying and what it is that he's not saying. Remember the instructions that he gave is provided because what he's calling them to do is not happening within the church. This is not what the godly women of the church are doing. In this particular case, they were not adorning themselves in, a respect, in respect, respectable apparel with modesty and with self-control. This is not what was going on. And we understand that this was happening within the context of the church. That's what he means by likewise. Likewise connects this with the previous section, which is just letting us know within the church, when the women were coming together, when the women would come together, which tells us two things. Number one is that women are valuable in the church. Amen. We're going to talk about that next week, that they're, that they're present within the community of the church. But it also tells us something else. It tells us just as men can be distracting in the church through all their anger and through their arguing, women can be distracting to what's happening on church because of the way that they're ultimately dressing, because of the way that they're dressing. Now, two things that I want to be able to point out that I think he's talking about, about this inappropriate dressing. Two, two parts within the context. Number one, there's a sexual content. The word modesty there really has overtones of sexuality. And so what he's referring to here is he, he, he's ultimately saying within context, remember where they are, they're in the city of Ephesus. And this is a blatantly sexual 
uh, uh, um, sexually blatant community. It, it is in every fabric of everything that they do, from their art, from their teachings, from, from their, their worship. In fact, this was the home of, of the temple Artemis. And in there, as the people were walking around, there would be this temple, and there would literally be hundreds of temple prostitutes that would, that would stand trying to do everything they could to elicit and to be able to draw in men and to be able to wear certain clothes that would attract men and stir men sexually so that they would have them come in and be able to take part in what they would call worship to their gods. And apparently what's happening here is that the women, instead of them setting their own tone, their own godly tone, they're taking on and ascribing the clothing and the dress of their culture. And so what he's ultimately saying is as clearly as I can, he says, ladies, don't dress in a way or dress in the, with the intent of attracting men to you in a sexual way especially in the church, but I certainly think that it would be in a lot of different places. Why is this so important? Remember, during the day, this would have struck them as, as, as even odd because they lived in a, in a place. Ladies, you know when you're going for clothes, it's hard to find clothes, right? You're like, hey, listen, I want to have anything that really accentuates too much or shows too much. Well, good luck. Good luck to be able to find some of those clothes. It can be a very difficult thing. Your children going to prom or whatever it is, you're sitting there going, yeah, this isn't going to happen because we can't find any clothes. Let me just wrap you in this duffel bag and you can go. It's the only thing we have. It's what we're ultimately down to. We're sorry. So he says that we don't dress with that. And, and let me just say this. It, it's, it's, I understand, let me say, I understand very clearly that there's some women that are just, they, they don't get it. They don't understand it. They get that. The reason why, my wife told me not to use her as an example, so I won't, but she was one of them. And the fact that when we got married and I told her, I said, honey, this is, this is how men think. She was horrified, horrified. Like, you, you guys are like, I'm, I'm not even going to respond to what he's saying right here, but, but horrified. And, and I said, yeah, that's why we need to kind of cover up and we need to make sure that all these things are appropriate in the which, which way that we're just, I understand that. But I do believe even within churches that there are women that are doing everything they can to try to gravitate and draw attention to, to other men, knowing very clearly that they are trying to draw men sexually to themselves. Whether they want to act on it or not, there's something within them, a sinful, sinful compulsion, that they want that kind of attention. And this is what he's calling them away from and away from doing. Now, there's, there's a sexual content, but there's also a social content. And this means that, but they were adoring, this is what he means by braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire. Again, I don't think that we have to do away with French braids and pigtails, all right? I don't think that's the point. Uh, I think what he's ultimately saying here is that when he talks about braided hair, during the day culturally, there was a rift between the rich and the poor, and that's what the, there was no middle class. Very rich or very poor. And within the church, we understand this historically that this is, was a problem. Again, you go back to the book of James. It says, that, look, two people come in simultaneously into your church. One has gold fingers. He's rich. You tell him to live to sit at the seat of respect. And he goes, and then you tell the more man, poor man to sit on the floor at the feet of other people. So there was a clear distinction. People were, were saying, hey, you're valuable or you have great worth based on how much you have. And, 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 and the gospel comes and the gospel breaks all of that up. Y'all look this way. Uh, breaks all of that up. And basically says, no, we are all equal in the sight of God, and the foot at the cross is equal. 
And so what's happening is these women are coming and they've got a lot of money. And so they have these very ornate hairdos that have all kinds of beads and all kinds of gold inside of it. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make a statement and they're trying to get people's attention to be drawn upon them. And so what Paul is saying in both contexts is he's saying, he's in essence saying, hey, guys, ladies, this is not about you. Men, it's not about you either, but it's not about you and it's not about me and it's not about any of us. Who's it about? God. So ladies, here, here's what he's saying when, when you're dressing. Ladies, when you come into the church and you gather for public, so he says, don't dress in a way that draws attention to yourself. Ask yourself two questions. Write these down, ladies, if you can. It says, first of all, when I dress, whose attention am I vying for? Whose attention am I trying to buy for? Who am I competing with? Am I trying to, to get the attention uh, of men? Or uh, am I competing with God by the way that I dress? Or am I trying to, to, to draw attention uh, to God? Uh, here's the second question. Uh, when you dress, where are you drawing the attention of others? Are you drawing it to yourself or are you drawing it to God? In the way that we understand this is, is by drawing attention to God, we have to be dressing respectfully, modest, self-controlled, in a way that allows God, who gets all the attention, who is, by the way, the only one who is deserving of it. You don't want to be focused. You don't want to be the focus when we gather together with worship. We want God to be that focus. Would you say amen to that, ladies? You know, there's a, a, there's an old pastor, Thomas Odom, he wrote in his, and I thought it was, it was relevant. He says, this paragraph of Paul's letter to Timothy cannot be read without raising hackles and blood pressure. Now, I don't know what in the world a hackle is. I got to be honest with you. I don't know what a hackle is, and I have no idea how you would raise one because I don't know what it is. But I do know what it's like to talk about blood pressure. And I do know that in the contemporary church today, to be able to talk to women and men about what they should or should not be wearing begins to raise blood pressure, if not for you, certainly for me. And the reason for that is, I think, is because of something that we're, there, there's a spirit. And ladies, I want to make sure that you're okay with this, that, that you're not sitting there and there's this kind of like attitude, which, sister, I can almost hear somebody say, well, what are we supposed to wear then? Cardboard boxes? What do we wear? Sackcloth? Might as well go get that big old duffel bag and that sleeping bag and put it on. Is that what you want us to wear, preacher? You want us to go for ugly? Is that what you want? Because I'll give you ugly. No, no. Thank you. That was enough ugly for, by saying that. I appreciate it. Don't need to say any more. I don't think that this is a, a call for you to be out of style. But I think what would happen is many people would sit back and they'd say that the Bible is simply out of date here. I can't tell you how many commentaries that I kind of can't use anymore because you get to a passage like this and they said they're out of date. They're out of touch with the, with the culture. But what we need to understand is the Bible, he says, the Bible's not so much out of date with our culture. Our culture is out of line with God. And when God's people, and what I mean is not so much the culture just out there, but the culture within the church. Look, by the way, this is what Christianity looks like. Christianity is being saved by grace through faith alone, by God giving us a new spirit within us that wants to do things the way that God would have us do things which means there's a lot of things that we were doing wrong before we came to faith with him. And the rest of our life is piece by piece, step by step, learning to do things God's way by submitting to him, even in the area of what? Dress. Not the Bible that is off. It's the world that is off. Now, I think this is pretty, so what do we do with this? What's the application? Well, I have already put together a committee that is gonna be the clothing detection committee. 
And so what they're going to do is they all, you'll be able to identify them by their rulers attached to their sides. And what they'll do is when people come in, we'll have a little holding area for those that their neckline isn't high enough, their skirt line's not long enough, their, you know, their clothes don't go all the way down to the wrist. And then what we'll do is, is we will put them over to a side and we'll have a special room for them until they learn how to dress. By the way, my wife and I are going to capitalize on this. We already came out with a new conservative pure clothing line uh, that has high necks and long sleeves and, and long dresses and all of those things. And so we're going to have that. And so we're going to capitalize. I, I don't think that's the key. Did you notice here that he, he makes no mention? Because I, I, don't, I don't think, because people's question is, then what are we supposed to wear? I don't think the application is, let us press on everybody from an outward force what everybody else should wear. I think this is an inward force. This is a force from within every woman who sits there and says, I don't want to distract a brother in Christ. I want to demonstrate what is godly. I want people when they come into the house of, not, not to think of me twice. I want them to only think of God and to be able to worship him. So this is a self-evaluation of what he says. But then what, but, but is there any help of what, you can, what kind of clothes you can wear? He doesn't, he doesn't tell us what kind of clothes. He doesn't give us the parameters there. Instead, what he says here, he says, verse 10, but, with, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? He says, ladies, you don't have to, listen, you don't have to spend so much time primping in front of the mirror. You don't have to spend hours and hours looking in fashion magazines of what is current. And is to spend so much time trying to figure out what kind of makeup and what's the best makeup and what's the blends and what's all these. You just don't have to, look, I'm not against makeup. I'm not against, please hear me in the right thing. Because somebody's going to sit there and go, oh, that's right. Ugly's on, baby. It's all whatever. No, because I mean, you know, if we walk in like pig pen because we're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, then that could be a little distracting as well, right? I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that we just, that nobody notices us at all. See, and this is the heart of that sinful heart. Because so many people want to be identified. I want to be identified. I, I want people to see me. I want people to know me. I want attention to be able to draw to myself. But the heart of a godly man, the heart of a godly woman, say, I could care less if anybody ever notices me as long as they know a holy God. And so what he says is, he says, the way to do that is to clothe yourself in righteousness, to clothe yourself in good works. Now, I think what he's talking about there is, ladies, you don't have to spend so much time in a mirror looking at yourself, trying to look at the outside, look in the mirror of God's word and work on the inward being. That is to be able to work on the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you want to work on true beauty, ladies, what that is is shown in the works of your hands. That's what's beautiful. In, 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 uh, in, in chapter 5, he'll, he'll say this in chapter 5. He'll say it, it includes bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, which means you're willing to do all the stuff that nobody else is wanting to do. That's what it means. So don't get scared of feet. And it says caring, of, caring for the afflicted and be devoting oneself for every good work. It's all this behind the scenes, doing things for the glory of God with not needing any attention brought to yourself at all. That's the beauty of God's word. And then look what the outcome is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
You know, it's so interesting. There's so many women that oftentimes really struggle with, with the way that they look and they feel like they're aging. And, and we have a statement that, 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 that physical beauty uh, dwindles with age. It passes with age. But you know, when you define beauty as the Word of God does, you only become more beautiful with age when you're a woman of God who is committed to God, who is fully and continually submitting to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So let me say this, two things. First of all, uh, daughters, you don't have to be overly concerned with your outward appearance. And I hope that some of you could sit there and go, awesome. I need that. I need to hear that. I need to be okay with that. Men, you don't need to be overly concerned with your wives or with your daughters or anyone else's outward appearance. Men, let us make sure that we do nothing that adds to the tremendous pressure on our wives and our daughters to look a certain way, to be shaped a certain way. Let us never say anything or do anything that is ultimately going to put pressure and create insecurities in our wives and in our daughters. Look, I've got five young daughters, and I'm just trying to learn through this. It's a train wreck for me. I'm awful. I'm awful at it. But I keep thinking to myself all of the time, and, but it's by the grace of God I'm praying, and I just sit there and go, how can I let them? And, and for me, it's really hard because I think my, my five little ladies are the most beautiful women in the world. I mean, I look at them and I'm like, wow, look at you. Wait a minute, this is bad. They're beautiful, and there's men that are going to come calling, and I hate those men, right? And so there's a, there's a part that I'm still working through. But what I want to be, it's so easy for me to be able to be, say, honey, you're so beautiful, and talk about their outside. But I want to cultivate them, the beauty of Jesus Christ, when they're doing those things that are precious in the sight of God and loving others. And they're not worrying about drawing attention to themselves, but reminding them that God sees that, and they are secure in that. Final thing, ladies, the reason why you don't have to worry about your covered is because if you're in, G, in faith in Jesus Christ, you have been covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what will help you overcome this. Men, you want to you understand what, what can overcome you with your anger? The only thing that can overcome is for you to understand that our example is Jesus Christ, who is tremendously humble in all that he did. See, both of these sins, both for men and women, the reason to argue is pride. The reason to be noticed is pride. But when we understand that God rejects the proud but gives grace to the righteous, we come and we say, we want to reject that. And I come to you and I receive your grace which was placed and demonstrated most clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ when you died for me while I was still a sinner. You died for me. That's the same grace now that we live out this Christian life. You're not trying to earn his grace. Quit trying to earn his favor, favor of man. Understand that you've been given to it as a free gift of church, by Jesus Christ and that now we want to be silent and we want to dress according to a way that pleases God, not to earn his favor, but because it's been granted out of an act of worship to him. Let's pray. Brother, you come. Dear Jesus, I thank you. We love you. God, we honor you. And Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would, move, God, that you would move in this place. God, even right now, God, there would be men that would repent, that would sit there and go, I don't want to be that man. I don't want to be the man that seems like the grumpy guy, whether it be around and be argumentative. God, God I pray that we will die to that pride. I pray, Lord, for those who are here and the ladies that are struggling with whatever they want to call it, low self-esteem, all those different types of things, which ultimately is the fear of man. God, I pray that they would repent of that and turn from that and understand who they are in you and understand that, God, they want to vie for your attention and not the attention for man. So we want to be faithful in those areas. Lord, we do this all because of the gospel. 
And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just have a time of response. Would you stand? I'm going to be down here. If you want to pray, you can come and pray. If you want to talk, we can talk just a little bit more. But just move with how God has moved inside of your heart. All right.